You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, welcome to Stonegate. How are we doing this morning? Good? Yes? Excited? All right. Well, this is my third year in a row to lock in Labor Day weekend. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Which confirms an ongoing suspicion that the elders plan and schedule for me to preach on only low attendance weekend Sundays. And it's hurtful, and they've neither confirmed nor denied it, but by their actions, I feel like they continue to confirm that reality. And I love it, B. I appreciate it so much. I have to give a shout out to a guy in my home group who brought this to my attention. I love this probably more than I ought. But low attendance weekend, the acronym is LAW. So from now on, we are only going to talk law on low attendance weekends. No grace because I'm mad and I'm hurt. So I'm just kidding. Ironically, the passage is like totally the opposite of that. So that being said, that is my introduction. Luke chapter 18. Let's go ahead and turn there. Here's the context for Luke 18. The context is the kingdom of God. Jesus just got done describing the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is at hand, and now Jesus in this passage is going to answer what I feel like is probably the most important question that any human being can answer. Namely, how does one enter the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is really important because it's not just a kingdom like we would think of a kingdom. The kingdom of God, there's really three parts to the kingdom of God. Right now, currently, present day, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that is existing and abiding in the hearts of Christians. And it's growing, and as more people come to know Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God expands. And so right now, it's spiritual. One day, the kingdom of God, at some point, Jesus is going to drop down out of heaven, and it's going to become an earthly kingdom where he takes this world that's been corrupted and defiled by sin and gets rid of all the sin and begins to establish a dominating, controlling kingdom on this planet. And then that's going to thrust us into an eternal kingdom that lasts forever, a kingdom that will not be shaken, a kingdom that will not ever be conquered. It will be the kingdom for all eternity. So the answer to this question, how does one get into the kingdom of God, is a very, very important question. How do we get into this kingdom? If we don't get into this kingdom, that means bad news for us. And so I just want to bring that question to the awareness that it's an unbelievably important question to answer. How do we get into the kingdom? And what Jesus is about to do is literally shocking. He's going he's gonna to take the answer to this question, how do we get into the kingdom of God? And he could go on this huge, like, complex discourse dialogue on answering that question, and he uses such uncanny simplicity and clarity to answer how we get into this kingdom. And Jesus is really a genius teacher, because he's, I mean, his audience, I mean, they would listen, listening to this would have turned, they would have no theological or religious category to put this story in. They literally, Jesus literally takes their religion and turns it totally upside down. And his answer to that question is, 
unique to him. No one up until this point has ever answered that question the way that Jesus Christ is about to answer this question. And it's an, it is, the answer is full of hope. It is, a, it is a good news sort of answer. And so with that being said, let's look at verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9, it starts off like this. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with with contempt. So let's talk about the audience. Jesus just got the passage just prior to this, just got done teaching on the parable of, uh, I think it has to do with prayer. It's called the unjust judge, but it has really a lot to do with prayer. And so he just gets done teaching this passage on prayer and he looks out and he sees in this crowd as this crowd is forming that there are people in this crowd who are going to take a passage and a teaching like this on prayer and they're going to pray for wrong reasons. And they're going to look out and Jesus looks out in this crowd and he just has this unusual ability to think there are people who look like religious people, who act like religious people, who seem like they're good moral people on the outside, but I know that their hearts are far from me. And this is, like I said two weeks ago, this is right here again, Jesus has the unique power and wisdom and authority to look beyond the scope of what you say and what you do and can actually see right into your heart. And he, like, there's no hiding from God. Like, there's things that I don't know about you. There's things that you don't know about me. There's things that we can pretend. There's things that we can hide. But when Jesus gets onto the scene, he looks out at a crowd, maybe a lot like this, and says, I see that there's people here that look good on the outside, who say good things, who even do religious sorts of things, but I know their hearts are far from me. And the subsequent reality is when they, when Jesus looks at these people who are, outwardly religious who are trusting in themselves for righteousness, for right standing before a holy God, that leads to them treating people with contempt, with rivalry, with looking down on people. So Jesus sees all of this, and it's all a heart issue. And he has the unique power and authority to see just that. So we've got these religious people who are self-exalting, self, uh, just consumed with self, And that leads to a treating others with contempt. And so this is the audience here. Now, I would say that's the immediate audience, but that's really, I mean, like if I were to ask you this question, how many religions are there in the world? Like you just think about that to yourself. How many religions do you think there actually, you just begin counting in your mind right now. How many religions do you think there are? You might say 10, 100, 1,000. The reality is there's only really two religions there's religion that is man accomplishing, man earning, and man trying, and man achieving. And then there's the gospel. It's just those two religions. This is a point where the gospel of Jesus Christ takes a turn from every other religion on the planet. Because there's really only two religions. Either we can achieve the righteousness of God, which God requires, or we can't. Either we can do it actively or it's done for us or to us passively. Either it's works righteousness that we earn or it's gift righteousness that we receive. There's only those two religions. It's like I remember a couple of years ago when I was living in Mansfield, we had uh, some Jehovah's Witness people swing by. We got in a conversation with each other and they kept saying, Here was the baseline argument. They were saying, we are a religion of grace. We are, by grace you are saved. By grace you are saved. By grace you are saved. And I kept pressing on him, kept pressing on him. And at the end of the day, I asked him, well, what what do I have to do to be saved? And he said, well, you've got to get baptized. You've got to join our church. You've got to do these three things. It sounds like works to me. 
That's why we're not on the same team. They kind of say we're on the same team, we're on the same team, and we're not. Because there's only two religions. There is works righteousness, man achieving, man accomplishing, or God accomplishing for man because we can't accomplish. Period. There's just those two religions. And Jesus is about to describe the gospel in an unbelievably simple and clear way. How does one become justified with God? How can we be made righteous before God? And here's the tension before we get to the passage. Here it is. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, I believe, the requirement is this. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in Leviticus, all over the place in Leviticus, it's repeated several times in the New Testament. Be holy, perfectly holy, as your Father in heaven is holy. Is anybody doing that? And in fact, if you continue to look at the Bible, this is everywhere. In James 2 verse 10, I believe it says, if you've broken just one of God's commandments... Just one commandment. You've basically shattered all of his commandments. And just by breaking one commandment, you are worthy of being eternally punished in hell apart from God. And in Romans 3 verse 20, it says, By no man, no man will be saved, will be justified, will be made right by his works. But through the works of the law come the knowledge of sin. This is just how it is. This, is. this is the tension right now. Like I want us to feel the tension that right now we stand sinful, unworthy, not holy, not perfect before a holy, perfect God. You feel the tension? So how do we get into the kingdom of God? How are we made righteous before God? How can we be reconciled to God? What is our hope? Where is our hope? That's the question that Jesus is about to answer. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 10, two men went up, this is the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's look at the setting. So where's the location? The location of this parable is in the temple. And so this is probably a Sabbath day. And so here's a little bit of background on the temple because here's the thing. Now, I think this is really important. There's something that the original hearers of this would have instantly picked up on that we probably don't pick up on. So at the temple, here's what's going on. Every day they have a temple ceremony from night either, they have two ceremonies at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. This is very likely, commentators agree, that this is the 3 p.m. service ceremony. And what just happened prior to people going and being dismissed for personal prayer and worship is the animal was just slaughtered. So right now we've got a tax collector and we've got a Pharisee entering into the temple and what just happened right before they enter into the temple for prayer and for worship is an animal, a lamb, would would have just been slaughtered. And let me just talk about that for just a second. The priest would have selected a spotless lamb and the lamb would have gone under a series of really rigorous examinations to ensure that it's spotless. And once the priest would have determined, yes, it's spotless, the lamb would have been put on an altar facing west, and the priest would have skillfully begun to slaughter this lamb. And as the blood sort it's a really graphic ordeal, the people literally would have stood in complete silence, 
just in awe over what's taking place. And as the blood was pooling over the altar, the priest would have gathered it and sprinkled it back over the lamb. And that whole symbol, that whole animal dying, being sacrificed, is a symbolic illustration of the fact that man needs God to act on our behalf. That's the whole purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It was a firm, everyday reminder that we, on our own, are incapable of salvation and we need God to act. So this is a symbolic illustration of God's wrath needing to be appeased for us to be saved and made right with God. So that's where we are in the temple. So this is, so after that happened, the people who just witnessed that would have been released into the temple for personal prayer and worship. Kind of a, the symbolism is now that God's wrath has symbolically been appeased, now we have the relationship with God and can now pray and worship God. So they go back into the temple. Now I'm going to reference that a couple of times, so you just mental note that, but that's literally what just happened is An animal was just slaughtered, and the whole purpose is to remind humans of need for God to act. So now, let's look at the Pharisee. We're introduced to a Pharisee. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees, at this point in time, are religious conservative people. They are the most religious conservative people in the New Testament. They are, get this, the closest theologically to Jesus Christ. So they were not the smartest group, the most educated group, That belonged to the scribes, and they were not the ruling religious class. That belonged to the Sadducees, who were just a little bit more liberal than the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they loved the law of God. They loved the law of God. They sought to keep all 613 commandments, Mosaic law. And then they actually invented things and commandments and laws to help ensure that they would keep the 613 Mosaic laws. That is obsessive-compulsive behavior. And these guys, man, here's here's the story of the Pharisees, shortly. They started off great. A couple of hundred years before this passage is written, they emerged really, they actually saw some of their Jewish Israelite brothers and sisters being disobedient to God's law. And so they actually started a little mini reformation in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then in that Reformation, they they did both and. They loved God and they loved the law of God. They loved both, both God himself as a person and the law of God. But something happened to the Pharisees. I don't know what happened, but somewhere between a couple of hundred years ago when they got started till now, they only loved the law now. They lacked love of God himself. The Pharisees were just your religious, conservative, Bible-believing, church-attending person who did all the right things and in his heart had no love for God, which is a really sad thing. And and that can happen to people just in general, but that's another talk. But that's where the Pharisees are right now. Present day in this passage, they went from love for God and love for the law of God to now they just love the law of God. No love for God in their heart. And then we're introduced to the tax collector. These guys are monsters in the New Testament. The Israelite Jewish person hated tax collectors. Let me tell you why. In the intertestament period between Old and New Testament, Rome dominated everything, literally conquered 75% of the world. So Rome just went on a tear, dominated everybody, had all of these countries in captivity, had all this control, had all this 
people that they were owning and possessing. And so they didn't have an army that was big enough to manage the quantity of people over the geographical location that they owned. So as a kind of response to that problem, how do we manage all these people in all these countries? They begin to pay people within these countries to work for the Roman government and tax the people. So a tax collector was not a Roman official. This brother was a Jewish Israelite who was paid by the Roman government to tax his own people. And there was no parameters around how much this tax collector could charge his own people. So tax collectors would get unbelievably rich and wealthy off of their own people. So it wasn't just unfair taxing. It was unfair taxing. And you're one of us. You're one of our people. We grew up with you. And Rome paid you off to now, now you work for Rome and now you charge us taxes and you've gotten rich off your own people. That was, at that time, these people were the lowest of the low. They were wealthy, but their brothers and sisters, their fellow Jews and Israelites hated them. I mean, when you think tax collector in their mind, you know, we would probably think something like child molester, sexual predator. I mean, that was the level of, you know, creates a really deep something in your gut that's like, ooh, I don't like that. And so that's the tax collector. Evil, monster, not good tax collector. So that being said, let's look at the Pharisee's prayer. This is the parable, and I'm going to look at four things about the Pharisee's prayer. And let's pick it up in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The first thing that I want you to notice about the Pharisee's prayer is that it is all about himself. Let me read this to you again to see if you can understand what the problem is here. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Did you pick up on something? Five times in two verses, he references himself, I. I, I, I. And this is unbelievable because of what he just saw as the animal was sacrificed. That animal sacrifice was supposed to register to every human being of the fact that we need God, that we need help, that us apart from God are hopeless. And so he comes back from seeing this animal sacrifice and starts talking about how great he is and starts talking about himself. It's like going up to the cross of Jesus Christ and looking at God's son being slaughtered on a cross because we need him to be, lest we be completely without hope. And we walk away from something like that and go, man, look at how awesome I am. That's the sort of, what's what's happening right now? Like it doesn't make sense that the Pharisee would walk back from seeing an animal slaughtered and sacrificed and go, oh man, let me talk about myself. And what I want you to notice, too, is within this, you don't pick up on this in the ESV, but this is really fascinating. It really reads, in the original language, the Pharisee standing prayed to himself. That's really what it actually reads. 
He's just talking to himself. He's not even talking to God. He has no real relationship with God. He's got all the things going for him on the outside. All the things going for him. He's got tithing and fasting, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And he's got all of these things and he gets up into the temple and he starts praying. And he doesn't even talk to God. He says God, but he only says God out loud so that people would think that he's talking to God. But it actually reads, literally, prayed to himself. This guy has no real relationship with God, no real heart for God, no real love, appreciation for who God is, no real understanding of his need for God. So he starts talking about himself. The second thing we see is that he's all about his works. He's all about his works. He mentions two things specifically, fasting and tithing. He says he fasts twice a week. I mean, this guy's this guy is on a whole level of discipline and dedication and commitment to doing right things. Let me tell you why. The Old Testament law only required that you fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Once a year. Just one time a year. And this guy fasts two times a week. And commentators say that he fasts two times a week, probably on Mondays and Thursdays. Let me tell you why that's important. Because those are market days, Mondays and Thursdays. Those are the days where your average Israelite would be out in the market, shopping, getting groceries, hanging out. So what a great day for the Pharisees to put on their sackcloth and their ashes and to go around town so that everybody would be looking at them and they would come up to them and say, wow, brother, what's wrong right now? And he would say, nothing, I'm just fasting right now. That's hypocrisy. That's doing things to be seen by other people. That's doing things not out of a genuine love and worship for who God is, but as a desire to be recognized and affirmed by other people. That's fear of man. That's approval as idolatry. That's trying to get approval from people rather than acceptance and approval from God. This guy is a hypocrite. This is hypocrisy in its ugliest form. And you might think, well, Dan, I'm so glad that this kind of pride and hypocrisy doesn't exist in churches. That was a joke. (laughs) Because frankly, some of the most ugly forms of pride and hypocrisy have a religious face on it, doesn't it? it. This is dangerous. The Pharisee. On the outside, think, wow, great. On the inside, no love for God, no appreciation for God, all about himself. No wanting to do things for right reasons out of a love and appreciation for who God is and all that God has done. He just does it for people's approval. Then he tithes on everything. He's only required, a modern day equivalent would be something like tithing on your net income. And he tithes on his gross income. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's essentially what he's doing. He goes, here's the law, and he goes one step further. And he vocalizes this in a temple service. Look at me and how much I fast and how much I tithe. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. He's talking out loud, not to God, to himself, to be seen by people. And thirdly, he compares himself to other people. 
I mean, this is really crazy. He, thank you that I'm not like this guy, the extortioner, the, the adulterer, or even like this tax collector over here. He begins comparing himself to other people, and subsequently, here's the reality, is when we play that look at me compared to this person or that person, that, just does, that does not leave us unaffected. That actually affects us on a heart level. Where he, the, Jesus' big point is you trust in yourself and you think much of yourself and you're overly preoccupied with self and you're exalting yourself and then that affects your view of other people and how you treat other people and you treat other people with contempt. That's where rivalry and jealousy and anger and bitterness, all of those things become legitimate heart issues when we compare to the wrong thing, namely to other people. It was like I was at a retreat a couple of years ago at Sky Ranch, not a Stonegate retreat. This was so funny. Oh my goodness. I went into, right before the worship, I went into the, to the men's restroom and there was like three or four junior high boys in the men's restroom. And I walked into a tense moment. I don't know what exactly was happening right there. I walk in and there's like legitimate, you can just feel the tension in the room. People are not happy right now. And so I'm eavesdropping because I'm curious to know what's going on. And there's some kind of something, I don't know exactly the background, but something happened and there were two of the guys arguing over who was older and more mature and why they need to be listened to. And they, were, they kept using the word mature. You're more immature than me. I'm more mature than you. So you should listen to me. That's the end of the discussion. And I walked out and in passing, one of them looks at me, looks up and says, those guys are just too immature. They just don't get it. These are junior high boys. I was like, so I had to work up my inner Christian to not yell at, to not let all the sarcasm and cynicism come flowing out of my mouth that was in my head, which is a heart issue, which I am convicted about that. But at least I had the social etiquette and maturity to hold it back. I feel like that's good. And I just thought to myself, all of you are equally immature. Like, you just think about someone in your life who's mature. Do they ever go around saying, I'm more mature than you are? That in itself is an immature thing to say. This is, I think, Jesus' big tension here is he catches wind that there's these guys who are comparing themselves to other people and he's going, Who cares? You're all sinful. It's like there's only two categories of people. There is sinful, which every person is in except for one person. And there's sinless, perfect, who nobody's in except for one person. There's just those two categories. So it's like Jesus catches wind and goes, Why? who cares if you're better than that person? All of you are sinful, period. That's why it doesn't make sense. And here's the reality. Here it is. The reality is a lot of us in this room, we would not verbalize and articulate out loud like the Pharisee does because this is an extreme parable. I mean, the parable here is the extreme pendulums. It's the Pharisee who actually is in the temple yelling it and saying it out loud. But I wonder if this kind of stuff happens inside of us. Like, I wonder if we, we might have the social etiquette and the social maturity and the filter system to not exactly verbalize that. But I wonder sometimes if this stuff isn't in us, if we're not treating others with contempt, looking down upon other people, trying to build ourselves up in, we, in comparison to other people. 
And Jesus catches one of this and goes, that doesn't make any sense because everyone's sinful. And everybody needs something outside of themselves to save them. There's no way that anybody could save themselves, earn salvation, merit salvation, accomplish salvation, achieve salvation. They need that done for them. So he compares himself to, compares himself to other people. And the fourth thing is this Pharisee reminds me of me. And you might be in here and you're like, ah, I don't really want to confess that I have an inner Pharisee inside of me. Man, I just want to give you, I want to, I want to open up the room and I want to encourage this group of people to just open up your life and explore where there's a little inner Pharisee inside of you and where the gospel and the Holy Spirit needs to come inside of you and work inside of you to drive some of that stuff out of you. And if you're scared to admit that, I will be the first to admit that this is, this is a Dan problem. This is a me problem. This is something I struggle with. And this is something that I just, I just invite you to explore your own heart, to open up your life and say, God, where is there an inner Pharisee inside of me? Just like I said earlier, this is, this is a parable of extremes. I don't think for the most part, people in this room would say, I'm better than you. Look at how great I am. Look at how awesome I am. Look at what I do for God. I don't think that actually would come out of your mouth, maybe. But I wonder if it's in your heart. I wonder if it's in your heart. I'd just like to encourage you. There's hope for the Pharisee in this, in this passage, in this room. So that's the Pharisee. Now let's get to the tax collector. And this is the gold, the absolute gold of the passage. So if you're like, I haven't really been listening right now. Now's the time to turn in. This is Labor Day. So I say things, and sometimes they're unplanned, and sometimes they're stupid. So I'm sorry. All right. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to—this is, un- this is unbelievable. Jesus is about to say, who gets saved? Who gets justified? Who goes to heaven? Who's in the kingdom of God? Listen to it. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Four things I want you to see about the tax collector. The first is that he's ashamed to be with people in the temple. He stands far off. Now just put yourself in the tax collector's position. The tax collector grew up probably with the people in that very temple. It's probably the same city that he grew up in. And they know him. They probably know what he's about. Like he probably grew up in the temple, in the synagogue with the same people in that temple. And something happened to the tax collector somewhere growing up where he kind of lost his way for a little bit. And then Rome offered him a job to work for him and said, hey, you can get money. You can be wealthy. You can chase the, the dream. You can have a huge house. This is probably taking place in Jerusalem, which is where the most wealthy of tax collectors would have had their home. And so this guy, something went wrong in his childhood and he began to pursue a very disobedient, immoral lifestyle where he was extorting money from his fellow Jewish Israelite brothers and sisters. And at some point this happened. So he probably walks into the temple and sees faces of people whom he's cheated out, people that he grew up with. Faces of people that he's extorted money from. So, he's ashamed. so what does he do? He goes to the back. 
So I can kind of picture the tax collector, you know, kind of coming in late to the service and opening up the door and just sliding into the back of the room, hoping that nobody sees him. He has what the Bible calls shame. And shame has a public dimension to it. It's when sins go public. Because his sins weren't just private sins that, weren't, that didn't affect anybody. The sin of getting into the Roman government and cheating people out of money, that would have affected the very people in this temple probably. So he goes to the very back of the room and he has shame. Shame has a public dimension to it where sin gets brought to light. Like, have you ever had that moment where you've kept stuff underneath for so long and all of a sudden, because of one scenario or another, the sin in your life gets brought to public and people know now. They know the real you now. That's what happens to this tax collector. They know the real him. What are they going to think? So he gets into the temple and he goes and stands at the very back. He feels shame to be in front of people. But the shame to be in front of people does not stop him or keep him from going to, help, to get help, which is an actually an unbelievably point, good, legitimate point in this passage. That it's not, I need to get better and apologize to everybody before I go to the gospel. That's not the Christian life. It's not, I need to make myself clean so people will accept me, so the church will accept me, and then I'll go to the gospel. It's, I have a legitimate need now, and it's, I know I'm going to be embarrassed to maybe go in this temple, but the tax collector goes, I need help. I'm going to the temple to get help. That's the gospel. But he feels, the first thing I want you to note is that he feels legitimate shame to be in front of people. Secondly, this is even more so, He's humbled to be in the presence of a holy God. So much so that he has physical reactions. He can't even lift up his eyes to heaven. So aside from the fact that there's people there and that there's shame and that people are around, it's even more shameful to be in the presence of a holy God. So much so that he can't even lift his eyes to heaven and he begins to beat his breasts. That's a very peculiar and unusual physical reaction. Even today, no Middle Eastern man, this is true today in today's Middle Eastern culture, no Middle Eastern man would ever do that. There's very rare, if ever, there's there's a couple times in history that this is ever recorded that a man would actually do. And the reason why is because in Middle Eastern culture, this was a very unreal outward sign of anguish and distress. And Middle Eastern men, it just wasn't culturally acceptable to show this level of emotion. But when a sinner gets into the presence of a holy God, these kinds of emotions start to come out. Because we're comparing ourselves to right things now, to the right person now. When sinful people get around perfect God, legitimate physical emotions start to come out. So this man just feels unbelievably anguished, distressed over sin, over shame, not just in front of people, but in front of God himself. And I'm reminded of like a story like in Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah the prophet just peeks into the throne room, just gets a little glimpse of what's going on in the throne room. And he sees Jesus Christ sitting on his throne and all of these angelic beasts surrounding him and singing to him. And you know, this is a, that's an unbelievable passage. And Isaiah walks out of the temple. And what does he say? He doesn't say, look at how great I am. He says, woe is me. 
I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what happens when sinful people meet a holy God. That's a really unbelievable passage because there's the most high-level angels in that Isaiah 6 passage, the seraphim. And if you remember in the Bible, what happens when humans meet angels? They fall to their face in terror over angels. You remember Joshua? He's going and he's conquering everybody in the book of Joshua and he runs into an angel and he goes, oh my gosh, are you on our team or are you on their team? And he goes, I'm not on either of your teams. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And he falls down and he's like, oh my gosh. And you remember in Luke where Gabriel shows up to Mary and Gabriel says, hey, I've got a special message for you. And doesn't, Mary doesn't even look up, but just falls to her face in terror. And Gabriel goes, whoa, 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 I'm just an angel. And even the most powerful angels, the seraphim, when they get into the presence of God, perfect angels, they, they have two wings specifically to cover their eyes. They fall to their knees and they start worshiping. And this happened to, this happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9. Paul's walking as prideful and arrogant as anybody in the world. And Jesus Christ met Paul in Acts chapter 9 on the way, the road to Damascus. And a huge light shined. And what happened to Paul? He falls to the ground, goes blind, and is out for three days. Because when men get into the presence of a holy God, we're not so great anymore. We have need. We recognize need. We see ourselves for who we really are. And this is a great, the point here is this, that when we see God rightly, we see ourselves rightly. We know ourselves rightly. That's what J.I. Packer's book, the whole book, Knowing God, is about. When you know God more, you know yourself more. The more you understand the character of God, the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the more we understand rightly who we are. And thirdly, he recognizes his sin. Let's look at this. I want to read this to you. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That is not correct. In the original language, it is the sinner, definite article sinner. That's huge. Have mercy on me, God. The sinner, definite article in the original language. It is as if the tax collector is standing before a holy God and it's not like he's one of a lot of sinners. It's like, I am the only sinner in the world before a holy God. It's the complete and total opposite disposition and demeanor that the Pharisee had. It is, I am a sinner. I'm not just a sinner. I am the sinner. It's like when Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. So he comes up and says, I am not just a sinner, I am the sinner. It's as if he's saying, there's nobody else in the world who's more sinful than I am next to this holy, perfect God. And this is the reality. Now, recognizing sin is key for understanding grace. It's absolutely key. So I just want to give you a quick illustration. You know, it's like, you just think about the last time you were criticized. I bet you said something like, if they just knew me, they would not criticize me like that. What I would contend that what we should say is if you just knew me, you would probably criticize me even more. Because only you and I are intimately and personally acquainted with the sins that go off inside of us. I don't know what goes on through your mind. I don't know what goes on through your heart. I don't know. 
I only know surface stuff because that's all I can see. But like we said earlier, there's another person who doesn't just see surface stuff. He peels back the surface and has the wisdom and authority to look right in to what's driving and motivating outward moral behavior or immoral behavior. He sees all motives and desires. That person is Jesus Christ. And I say all this, here's the thing, I don't, this is not intended to make us feel bad. It's not. But this is the pathway to understanding how great Jesus Christ is. It's like right now if I were to go out and say, you know, hey, look at the stars in the sky. What's 1015 right now? You can't see stars right now. You can't see stars right now because the light of the sun takes away the light of the stars. But when you put a black drop against the stars, you can all of a sudden see the stars. That's what sin is. That's that's the key of recognizing sin is it highlights and accentuates the glory of Christ. That's the third thing. The fourth thing about the tax collector is that he recognizes his need for atonement. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful does not mean mercy like we would think of mercy. In fact, it's the only place in the New Testament that this is used. Like in just later on in Luke 18, the blind beggar says, God, be merciful to me. That's the right way to use mercy. It's just to show mercy. But this word does not mean mercy. It means this, God, be propitiated. It means to have one's sins atoned for, covered and atoned for. So here's what this tax collector is saying. He's saying, what I just saw with the animal sacrifice symbolically, what I just realized, what just happened symbolically, namely God's wrath being poured out, not really on the sacrifice because it's just a, sac- it's just a symbol. What symbolically just happened to that animal, I need that to happen really and actually in my life. That's what propitiation means. It means wrath. It means where does God's wrath go? And what Jesus being the propitiation means is that God's wrath is taken off of us and it's funneled on to Jesus Christ. And so what this tax collector is saying is he's saying, I need that to happen in my life. I need that animal sacrifice, that wrath, God go, not just symbolically, but I need that to really happen. And in just two weeks' time from this parable, there would be another sacrifice. And it would not be an animal sacrifice that would happen once a week, twice a week. It would be a once and for all sacrifice. And this sacrifice would go through a series of examinations and re-examinations in the court of law five or six times back and forth. And this man would open not his mouth like a lamb being led to slaughter. And this man would be pronounced innocent and spotless, but condemned. And this sacrifice would be whipped and beaten and tried and executed and hung on a cross at almost, if not exactly, the same time that this animal sacrifice would have happened facing west. And this person would not be an animal. It would be the Lord Jesus Christ himself just two weeks from now. And on that cross is when God took the wrath that was supposed to go to you and I and all of those who believe and dumped it onto his son and then now gives us what we actually need, namely the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and gives it back to us. That's what theologians call the divine exchange. It's a beautiful thing. 
where Jesus takes the wrath and we take the righteousness and we receive it. We don't earn it. We received it. It's not works righteousness. It's gift righteousness. It's we get it as a gift. Huh. It's just a gift that we receive. It's like, Chris, we just open up the present and boom, Jesus' righteousness comes for all those who believe. And that is what gets people into the kingdom of God. And so this man, the tax collector, walked away justified. He walked away made right. That word justified means instant, permanent, right standing with God that will never be taken away. It's instant. It happens right then in the temple. Instantly it happens. He believes. He realizes sin, realizes holiness of God. He goes, I need help. I need Christ. I need a sacrifice. I need that to happen. And it's instant. It's not God saying, you can be justified, but you've got to do these things. It's just, that's what I'm looking for. That mentality, that understanding of need and understanding of God's power and wisdom and authority and holiness and recognition of sin, all of those things kind of convulge inside of this tax collector. And he goes, I need you. And it's instant, happens right then, justification. And it's permanent. The Greek is an actual, it means permanent. It's happening now and it's never going to change. It's perfect, right standing with God forever, not because of you and I and what we've done, because only and solely of what Christ has already accomplished. It's instant and it's permanent. And he walked away justified. And I close with just this last statement. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a parable, it's a, it's a proverb. And that word exalt is a synonym in the Greek for salvation. So let me just sub that out. This is a great way to close. For everyone who saves himself will be humbled. Everyone who saves himself will be humbled. Humbled in the most harsh degree. But the one who humbles himself will be saved. Tax collector or Pharisee. So here's how we're going to close. We're going to close with the Lord's Supper today. So in a minute, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite those of you who are in Christ to the table. And at that point, this is a great way to close a passage and topic like today. Because the Lord's Supper is just an outward symbol of what Christ has done. Namely, it's his broken body and his spilt blood for us. And so you can come up to the table and grab a piece of bread and dip it into the juice. And then as you chew it, you can reflect upon and remember the person and work of Jesus Christ who is our only way of entering into the kingdom of God. And if you're not in Christ, man, we would invite you to just take Christ today. And the reality is, just like the tax collector, you might have walked into the temple this morning, the church this morning, unjustified, and you today can walk away justified. Instant, permanent justification that can happen today. And if that's you, I would love to talk with you down at front when we're closed up. But for the Christians in here, I want to first say, before you go up to the table, maybe you just take some time to personally reflect on your own life. Like, don't just run up to the table half-heartedly. Maybe there's God's convicting you of inner Pharisee sorts of thoughts and feelings and behaviors. Maybe God's convicting you of certain sins in your life. Maybe you've had 
legitimate conviction, I would just encourage me, maybe you just sit there for a moment before you race up here and grab your Lord's Supper and you just pray and ask God to come into your life and reveal and to encourage and to speak into you. So let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Father, Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. God, for service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.